you. This is Cruise Radio Rewind. Real reviews from real cruisers. How's it going? My name is Doug Parker. Thank you for checking out this episode of Cruise Radio Rewind. Coming up today, we have maritime historian and journalist back with us again, Peter Canego. He was on a few months ago talking about the ship scrapping process. And what do you know? It's a reality now. Carnival ships there, former Royal Caribbean ships. So I wanted Peter to kind of walk us through what exactly happens once a ship leaves the fleet, goes to the scrapyard, and obviously gets decimated by plasma torches and steel saws. So Peter Canego joins us on the line right now to walk us through the process, and we'll probably talk a couple of other things. Welcome back to the show, Peter. Thank you, Doug. It's always nice to be here with you. Peter, what a weird time to be covering the cruise industry, huh? Yeah, this is, um, there's nothing like these times, Doug. We've, we've gone through, um, Achille Laurel hijackings and crashes of the economy. There have been soulless rules that have endangered classic ships, you know, from time to time. But this is like the perfect storm of events with yeah. COVID destroying the economy to the point where people can't go cruising even if they felt safe and the cruise lines being forced to shut down. We haven't seen anything this bad, and this is actually probably worse than the fuel crisis in the early to mid-70s when a lot of viable ships were being sent off to the scrapyard. Dozens and dozens yeah. of ships at a time were going to Taiwan to be scrapped, and some were only as, as, as new as 12 years old, and others were in perfect condition. It was just that there was no market for them, and... Mm -hmm the cruise lines and, and steamship companies, because at that time there were still steamship lines, couldn't afford to operate the ships. So Crazy. it was a terrible procession. But now we have ships that are still incredibly viable. Costa mm -hmm. Victoria, beautiful ship in excellent condition. She was, you know, she, they shut her down when, when she was in top form and nobody would have suspected that she would have been the first of all of these to be doomed to the uh, scrappers. Well, when it comes to cruise ship scrapyards, the word on the street is no one knows a scrapyard like Peter Canego. So I hope you don't mind. I'm going to ask a couple of questions about the scrapping process. Okay, Doug. Well, no one that speaks English and lives in the West knows a cruise ship scrapyard like me, probably. But yeah, there are there are people that live and work scrapping, but you know, it's in their own country and in in their own way. Uh, but I go with the historian uh, point of view, and also. Um, just wanting to salvage things that yeah. are of another era that, that need to be saved from obscurity. We've seen over a dozen cruise ships uh, heading to the scrapyard here within the past couple of months. Carnival Corporation, also those two former Royal Caribbean ships. They normally go to two different scrapyards. They normally go to Alang, India, or they go to Turkey, and I cannot pronounce the city um, just north of Izmir, I believe. With that said, why would someone choose to take Turkey over India? Like your documentary was all India, but right now everyone, like Turkey's a hot spot. Why is that? Well, Alang is more well-equipped for the cruise ships in general. Um, it has a market just outside the scrapyard that they sell the, the fittings, everything from toilets to sinks and sofas and glass items, paper items, you know, there's, there's two or 300 vendors that are just outside. So all of these things that are on the cruise ships can be removed and sold. And then the scrapper can make a little bit more money on his investment. Um, 
Aliyah in Turkey has less of a market like that. So it's going to be interesting since they do seem to be rather hot for getting, you know, this new batch of ships. They've also never scrapped ships that are as large as the Monarch um, and the Sovereign, which is now on her way, and the Fantasy. Um, the largest ship, largest passenger ship they had scrapped there until now was the um, Old Fair Sky, which was the Atlantic Star in her last days. Um, and she was 45,000 tons. Wow. So now they're almost doubling that size. So it'll be really interesting to see how their infrastructure handles this. This is a first. So um, I don't have um, I don't have a lot of precedent to tell you with Aliyah doing this, except I think the reason the ships are going there right now, as opposed to Alang, is A, Alang has been somewhat shut down because the epidemic or pandemic has struck mm-hmm. India really badly. So taking crews to deliver the ships into India has been a challenge and getting them back out of there without the quarantines and such. So I think it's been easier for some of these companies, especially the European based ones like Pullman tour and Costa um, to sell ships to European based yards. And technically that's what Aliyah is in Turkey. They have slightly higher safety standards. They have uh, better uh, cranes and equipment and they have monitoring of the remediation process of the toxins like asbestos and how their workers are treated. That's easier to monitor in Turkey than it is in India, which is admittedly getting and has been getting a lot better uh, about taking care of um, the the environmental and workers' issues than they were, say, 20 years ago when when it was a travesty um, of what they were doing. So I think that might be the reason at the moment Aliyah is more popular, but Alang is opening back up, and I do expect that there's going to be some competition, and some of these ships are actually going to be ending up in India, too. We saw a little bit of this in a video recently, but when a cruise ship goes to a scrapyard, do they just take it out far enough put the throttle down and ram it right onto the beach? To a certain extent, yes. They do like to beach the ship. Um, That way it's easier to start the cutting process. Turkey doesn't have this 30-foot tidal variance that India does, and it's not a muddy embankment. Um, Once the ship gets up there, they're dealing with, you know, dry land and sometimes concreted over uh, yards where they just drag the ship further and further up. They have better cranes and equipment so they can chop off big, big giant sections and actually lift that section up and move it onto land where it's then broken into smaller pieces instead of dragging it ashore. Um, But it does make it easier if they do ram the ship up and then they don't have to, you know, it, it, it will start sliding ashore as it were better and if it weren't just sitting in the water. But yeah, it's more of an industrial area than in Alang where it's literally a beach. It was a fishing village once. And now, of course, it's a it's a beach where at the very top of the beach, there are scrapyards in India that, that um, have offices and they do take some of the parts and sell them there. But most of the stuff just goes immediately, gets cut down and created away in trucks to the to the various um, steel mills that are located uh, nearby in India. But it's not as crucial as it is in India mm-hmm. uh, to get the ship high up onto the ground um, because, like I said, they have better equipment to deal with it. Obviously, it varies from ship to ship, but on, on, uh, on average, 
How long does the scrapping process take from the ship getting beached to it being nothing? Well, in India, let's take, uh, let me say like a 30,000 ton passenger ship in India would normally take uh, between six and eight months to be scrapped if all the conditions were good and the ship was beached high up and, um, you know, there were no terrible monsoons or things to delay delay the process. In Turkey, the process tends to go much faster. For a 30,000-ton ship, it would take maybe three to four months to break the ship down. So it's going to be very interesting to see what they do with Monarch and Sovereign, and if they get Fantasy. I mean, these are much bigger ships. So um, my estimate would be probably about six months on those Mm -hmm. ships, um, considering that Turkey works faster. If they have the infrastructure to start absorbing the steel and all of the fittings, um, then that would be my guess for those ships. Have you ever heard of a situation where, like, say the ship goes to the scrapyard and then last minute they're like, oh, we have a buyer for it, and then it goes back into service? I have dealt with many times where a ship actually arrives at the scrapyard and then this huge campaign is launched. Oh, my God, we got to save the ship, the Mm -hmm. SS Norway which was called the Blue Lady when she arrived in India and she was on the beach and there were still people out there. We got to pull her off the beach. We got to get her back and she's got to become a museum or a hotel or some cruise line can fix her up and operate her again. And no, that was too late. Once the ship's on the beach, getting the ship off the beach and taking it, you know, and, and without it being damaged, you know, when a ship is floating in the water, it's one thing. That's what the hull is designed for. When a hull is sitting on dry land without being on the proper mounts, as it is, say, in a dry dock, that's when all kinds of stresses start to happen and you can get cracks or or damage. So that ship becomes pretty much useless. The only occurrence where I can think of uh, where a ship was actually saved from the scrapyard was back in the 70s. There was this company, New Zealand Shipping Company, and they sold their ships Uh, to Taiwan for scrap and the ships went to Taiwan and they were waiting to be, you know, cut up. And at that point in time, a buyer came in Orient overseas line, the same people that bought the queen Elizabeth. And then she burned in Hong Kong Harbor, bought these three New Zealand shipping company ships from the scrapyard. And then they operated them for several years, uh, Oriental Esmeralda, Oriental Carnival and Oriental Rio they were passenger cargo liners, and they did round-the-world service for a couple of years until they went back to Taiwan and ended up getting scrapped. That's the only case where I'm able to uh, give you an example. Although it may have happened, I'm just not aware of it. Arnold Donnell, the CEO of Carnival Corporation, likes to say we don't scrap ships, we recycle them. But who determines that price? Does a broker buy the ship and then send it to the scrapyard and make all the money off of whatever's left inside of it? Well, yeah, the whole price is based on the steel and and how marketable steel is at the moment. And countries like India desperately need steel. They, they, you know, when they melt the ships down or melt the the scrap metal down, they melt it into rebar and they use that for constructing roads. And even though they say they don't use it in building infrastructure, because you're not supposed to use recycled steel, Mm -hmm. uh, I believe, because it's not quite as, as sturdy. Um, they need that in India because it's a developing country. So that's why there's a market there in the first place. Um, And yes, well, you can say recycle, but 
it's the same thing. <laughs> it's right. like saying, you know, are you dead or did you pass away? Um, it's just <laughs> another, you know, more pleasant word for uh, something that um, is inevitable uh, for ships. They are scrapped, and during the process, most of their materials are recycled. Um, but you have to scrap a ship in order to recycle it. That's true. Now, how has the actual scrapping process or recycling process changed over the years? Has it changed much? Yeah, I believe it has changed um, in in third world countries like India for the better. Um, They have been shamed um, for their poor environmental practices. I mean, they didn't have the ability to remediate uh, things like asbestos and the oil and the toxins when ships were first going there. They didn't have an infrastructure designed for that. So they learned over time how to do that. They didn't have um, helmets and they didn't have proper shoe coverings and uh, or foot coverings like, like you know, good, good sturdy shoes to work with. They learned from that too. And then they learned about the damage from asbestos. It was a long slow process, but they did learn. And so they do remediate as much as they can with their infrastructure. They now have a yard where they actually strangely burn the asbestos. If you burn it at a high enough temperature, asbestos will burn and then it turns into sort of a sand-like substance and then they bury that. And it's much safer than it is just tearing off asbestos and throwing it into a big pile where the little fibers break off and float in the air and and get into people's lungs. So they have learned a lot about that. Instead of dumping the oil on the beach, they will take the oil out of the engines and then use it. You know, they'll either burn um, uh, firewood or whatever, or, or use it for cooking, or they'll, you know, if they get enough, they pump it back into a, an operating ship and use that. Um, so they've been become very, very clever about using a lot of these materials that were once just thrown into a big pile and set on fire or buried or dragged to some you know vacant lot somewhere. Um, they're much more careful about that um, as well as they are making sure that the employees are taken better care of. Is it up to Western standards? Absolutely not. But the difference between a ship going for scrap in India, versus a ship being scrapped properly in the EU or the US is that you have to pay the scrappers in the EU or US to do it properly. And that way everybody's in proper hazmat suits. There's HVAC systems that take all the fibers from asbestos and any other sort of toxins. They, they, they're able to contain it, but that costs a lot of money. So most of these cruise lines aren't going to pay a scrapyard to do the dirty work when they can get paid to have their steel uh, or ship before it becomes steel sent off to be broken up in a third world country like India or say a second world country like Turkey. When Arnold Donald or any of the carnival people want to send their ships to say Brownsville, Texas and pay them several million dollars to do the job, Mm -hmm. then they can say they're recycling and not scrapping the ship. But I, I, I dare them to do that. That would be a great step in the right direction if they did. Uh, and in the meantime, the Indians and other people uh, in Pakistan and Bangladesh and China are more than happy to buy our Western ships and pay for that steel and do it their own way. You mentioned asbestos a couple of times, and it has me wondering, is it safe to say like the ships that rolled out in the 90s probably don't have asbestos in the public areas? They should not. Okay. Um, I believe asbestos was stopped 
in the 80s mm-hmm. at some point. Okay. Um, so I believe that they're maybe in the engine room, they do need asbestos to cover certain That's what know, I was thinking. and, and yeah. venting, but I'm not even sure about that. So those ships should be pretty much free of that. Mm-hmm. But don't forget, they've got paint, they've got PCBs, they've got plastics, they've got all sorts of other things that are deemed toxic in, you know, when you're talking about disposing of things. So they're not toxin-free, even though they may, let's keep our fingers crossed, be asbestos-free at this point in time. Before Inspiration and Fantasy headed to the scrapyard, they were in Curacao offloading heavy equipment, as was Monarch over in Malta. What would you consider, like, what are they offloading? What is the heavy equipment they're taking off? I would hope that in the case of, you know, both uh, Carnival and Royal Caribbean, that they might have some penchant for some of the specially commissioned artworks that are on board those ships, mm-hmm. they might find certain value to those things, not just for, um, you know, monetary reasons, but for historic and sentimental reasons. Um, Fantasy was built with all sorts of, you know, crazy Joe Farkas interior concepts that didn't necessarily survive the, the test of chicness and time, um, you know, but in another 20 years or so, some of those elements could actually be considered historic and, and quite precious in their own way, because that was the first super duper liner that had Farkas materials that were just, I mean, the neon on that ship <laughs> yeah. was incredible. And those, those um, elevators that, you know, in the uh, atrium and they had these sculptures that were really cool. Uh, the fantasy had artwork by Yaakov Agam, who was one of Israel's premier artists. I think he's even still alive. And Agam had this wonderful way of having sort of a 3D art where you would look at it from one angle and it would look blue and red. And then you get to the middle and then the colors would change and it would be blue and green. And then you get to the other side and then it's green and yellow. And just be, you know, just very, very cool conceptual stuff that um, it was sort of eye popping and glitzy. But at this point in time, very valuable and important, and hopefully they didn't just, you know, let whatever was left of that stuff on fantasy go to the scrapyard in in Turkey, where I don't think it would be treated with any sort of deference. Mm -hmm. Um, So I'm keeping my fingers crossed on that. Royal Caribbean has not scrapped its own ships yet. Now, this is the first with the, um, you know, the, the, the Royal Caribbean ships that did go to the breakers were sold to second and third operators and used for many years. So any of the original things that were on those ships are, are, were long gone um, and out of Royal Caribbean's reach. I do hope with Monarch and Sovereign, which did have some original commissioned artworks, and especially I, I remember in the Viking Crown Lounge on Monarch, I did a Mexico cruise, and there were some interesting sculptures, and there mm-hmm. were some tapestries, and there That's were right. some cool things that I do hope Royal Caribbean they seem to have sort of an interest in, in that kind of thing, just judging from Richard Fain's knowledge of ships and, and appreciation of art. I would mm-hmm. hope he would be sitting at the top of a board of people saying, look, we've got these things on those ships and they should come off and, and be put somewhere, maybe on another ship in the future or in a museum. I hope they did that. Um, but I do know that they would take off things like sound systems, certain uh, things used in entertainment, uh, LCD screens, those type of things that could still be used on a new ship mm-hmm. would probably come off and be taken and put in storage and, and probably 
be able to be utilized. Uh, I don't think the furnishing so much or, um, you know, more down-to-earth artworks that weren't of any special merit, I don't think they'd really care about that kind of stuff. Uh, so the ships are probably loaded with those type of things and, and, and heading off to their various fates. Yeah, so a total side note, I was in Cozumel last July on Carnival Vista, and I noticed that we were going to be in port with Fantasy, so I went mm-hmm. on to Fantasy for the day, and we oh. got we got to Cozumel, and my friends wanted to go bar hopping, and I almost <laughs> blew off the trip to Fantasy to go bar hopping, but I was like, you know what, this was my very first cruise ship in the mid-90s. I just want to take one walk through to kind of go down memory lane. It was my first time going on the ship since I went on it in the mid nineties and looking back yeah. now, you know, hindsight's always twenty twenty. It's like, I'm so glad I did it because I would never have a chance to do it again. Here you go. Yeah. You are a prime example of what I always lecture my friends about. Never when it comes to a ship. I just did this cruise on the Astoria, the old Stockholm, Mm -hmm. 72-year-old ship that's been vastly rebuilt. And she's a beautiful ship, even as rebuilt. And they were doing cruises um, out of uh, Puerto Penasco in Mexico, which is just about an hour's drive from Arizona. And I I have to do that. I had just sailed in the Astoria, but I wasn't going to miss this chance to go back on the 72-year-old ship and and have an opportunity with her being so close by. And I had all these friends, oh, gosh, I'd love to do that. But, oh, I'm not sure about the timing. And, mm-hmm. oh, you know, maybe next year when she comes back. And I'm like, never say never. There is never a chance with a ship th- that's guaranteed. You have this opportunity now. Do it. And all those people are now crying. Oh, I missed my chance because this story, it <laughs> looks like she's going to end up being scrapped. She she was sailing under charter for CMV cruises mm-hmm. who are now trying desperately to get funding so that yeah. they can stay afloat until this the COVID thing dies. But the Astoria was going to be retired this year at the end of October after doing some farewell cruises out of the UK. And now she's not going to be able to do those cruises. So unfortunately, the the most viable option is that she's going to go for scrap. So these people missed out. You did exactly what I would have told anybody to do at that time. And if I were with you, I'd be going on the fantasy because I have not been able to get back down to see the fantasy. Mm-hmm. She's been at the top of my list along with ecstasy and a few of the other early fantasy class ships because I haven't been on them in decades and I would love to see them, you know, as they were in their final years. And now I'm going to miss that opportunity. I think with uh, fascination, which I think is going to be one of the next ones to go if what I'm reading is correct. And I haven't, I've never actually been on the Fascination. She's the only one of the eight ships that I never had a chance to get on board. So I'm really, you know, a little disappointed with myself, but I really, I didn't have many opportunities. But believe me, if that ship were next to me in Cozumel and I were able to go on board (laughs) and you were able to make the arrangements, which you clearly did, all the power to you. And by the way, how did she look? Had she been changed much since the, the 90s when you were on her? No, she still had the miles of neon and all of that. Yeah. I mean, they they put in like an alchemy bar in there back at the old wine right. bar before you enter the comedy club, and it was it's really yeah. weird like going on that ship because in the back of the fantasy on those fantasy class ships, the newer one that's one big lounge back there, but on fantasy yeah. half of it's the kids club and half of it's the comedy club, and there's a big wall right. right in the middle of it, and so it was just weird seeing those having been on other fantasy class ships how different. 
the actual ship is. Of course, we're talking over 20 years later, too, so... But, but but she did have the neon in the atrium. She, see, I would love to have been able to see that again because I hated it when it came out. I mocked it. I made fun of it. And now I look back and I go, oh, you know, she was really cool. And I just was I was judging her by different standards at the time. I mean, we still had the SS Norway. We still had the SS mm-hmm. Rotterdam. We had a lot of really cool, beautiful old ships that I would much prefer to the fantasy. So I wasn't giving her her just due. And I would love to go back sort of in a nostalgic way and rewalk those decks but that unfortunately is not going to happen before i derailed you we were talking about uh the ship over in curacao offloading heavy equipment so when it goes from let's say curacao to the scrapyard the heavy equipment is off but it does, does it still have the doors the chairs the plates the toilets and all of that yeah in most cases that that is correct yeah okay now you've salvaged a lot of great pieces over the years What's the most valuable? But we're going to go in two directions here. Give us the two mm-hmm. most valuable, one from a sentimental point of view and one from an actual value point of view. I will say probably the most valuable piece I obtained was from the dining room of the Stella Solaris. It was a um, six-piece panel by Emanuele Luzzati painted in gold leaf of an undersea battle uh, of these sea serpents that were half horse, half serpent, and the warriors. It was inspired by uh, Thermopylae, the great battle by Alexander the Great, but it was an undersea version. And it was just the most beautiful piece of art I think I've ever seen on a ship, number one, and number two, the most beautiful thing that I've ever owned. But I had no place for it in my house. I had a picture where we lined it up in front of my house at the time I lived in Moore Park, and it was the full length of my house, and it was uh, 10 feet tall, um, so I didn't have a ceiling that could accommodate it, even if I broke it up into sections and displayed it in different parts of my house. So I decided that that piece I would have to sell, and that paid for my whole venture where I sell wow. the stuff online, the midship century thing. It got me to India um, on several trips, and it was a really great investment, although it broke my heart to finally sell it. I sold it to a, a guy who sells things to movie stars, and from what I understand, it ended up in the home of I'm not supposed to mention his name, but I can say he was a star of Pirates of the Caribbean. Okay. And he bought a house in the Caribbean. Uh, and he's an avid fan of mid-century design and style, and it is in his Caribbean house, from what I understand, um, and I'm sure it looks really, really cool there. But I did tell the person I sold it to that when he sold this, that he must provide the provenance of everything that he sells to the buyer, whether they use it or not, at least it empowers them to know exactly what this thing is, where it came from, who the artist was, et cetera, et cetera. So I, um, I would say that's the most beautiful thing and probably the most cherished thing uh, that I've ever had from a ship. And it served me well, and I'm sure it's being admired by all sorts of uh, glitterati in its new home, and may it live on for many, many, many years. <laughs> wow. um, and then as far as like a sentimental thing, ah, God, that's really hard uh, because there are just so many... I'm so attached to this first generation cruise ship and old ocean liner batch of ships that went for scrap. 
Um, I would say probably the bell um, from the Oriole, uh, which was a ship that got me into doing this. She was a miniature Queen Mary on the inside filled with all these gorgeous woods and etched glass panels and nickel fittings. And when she went to India, that was a ship that got me going on uh, trying to rescue and salvage things back in 2001. Um, so I did get her bell, and that means the world to me. And I see it every day sitting on my fireplace mantle, and it gives me a little bit of a smile, although I wish that the ship herself still existed. So that's it in a nutshell. And you, you can open up a big Pandora's box because I could go on and on <laughs> and sure. on and name you about a hundred different things that are the most important to me, Doug. <laughs> how did you, how do you price something that you sold to that Pirates of the Caribbean actor? Like, how do you value that? Well, I did a lot of research. Um, when I was in India and I saw that panel, I didn't know who the artist was. And I got home and I Googled his name. This mm -hmm. is what I had purchased the panel, thankfully. And it was in my, you know, it was in the stack of stuff that was going to be sent to me, along with a bunch of ceramics and other artworks by the same artist, because he happened to do a lot of ships. Um, I went home and I Googled his name and I spelled it wrong. I spelled it L U Z A T T I. And I got about a hundred different hits on his name. And I thought, oh, wow, he's, he's pretty well known. Well, then I realized I misspelled it. And then I spelled it properly with the two T uh, with the two Z's and one T. And then there were thousands of links to him. And I thought, oh my God. Um, so I went on and I started doing research on what his things were selling for. And most of the stuff he did was for ships. So there wasn't much of his stuff available because it was still afloat out there somewhere. Um, so then I realized, okay, um, I've got something that's really valuable. So of course I kept most of it. I have the biggest collection of his artworks in the world here in Oceanside now, and it's all part of my house and it's not for sale. Um, so I put hefty prices and I dealt with this guy who was selling things to movie stars. So if he wasn't selling it for a lot of money, they weren't even interested. <laughs> so, <laughs> so he would sell it for a high price. And I realized at that point in time, okay, if he's going to sell this thing for, you know, X amount of thousand dollars, I'll sell it to him for 40% of what I think he'll sell it for. And usually, you know, after negotiating with him, because he's a real good negotiator, uh, I would end up parting with it for something in between what I asked for it and what he offered me. Um, so I was able to kind of gauge it that way. And then seeing that these things were actually selling, uh, when I put them on my website, I put them at what I felt was a reasonable price for me, knowing that most interior designers at that time had great budgets to work with. Mm -hmm. And again, if they went back to their client and said, I bought this artwork for a couple hundred dollars, the client would say, well, that's not worth anything. I don't want it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so it worked in my favor to put good prices on things, knowing that, um, the, the higher the price, the more it would be cherished. And most of these people, th there is no object, you know, as far as money is concerned. These people were super wealthy uh, people looking for something that's super valuable, important. And I'm glad that I was able to provide that. Peter Canego from MidshipCentury.com. We'll also link that up in the show notes at CruiseRadio.net. Peter, thank you so much. Very grateful to have you on again, my friend. Always a pleasure talking to you, Doug. Thank you so much. And again, I, I so appreciate what you do and how well you do it. And please carry on. It's very sweet. Thank you again, man. Okay, Doug. Take care. We're launching a series on CruiseRadio.net on the ships that have been sold 
and we're kind of highlighting and going really into them about the history and what were the firsts for these ships, things like that. Peter helped me and he provided a lot of photos as well from Carnival Fantasy back in the 90s. You can find all that at cruiseradio.net. I'll also link that in the show notes as well. I know I say that a lot, but it's just like there's a lot of information here, so we kind of want to put everything in one place for you. And with that, we'll talk to you on Thursday. Protect yourself and your neighbors. Stay safe and take care. During these difficult times for the travel industry, Cruise Radio stands behind the men and women who work so hard to bring our vacation dreams to life. From the captains and crew to travel agents, tour operators, vendors, and port employees, we offer a sincere thank you on behalf of the thousands of guests whose lives you impact each and every day. 